Creative Babble. So, John, today's bonus episode, we're going to, it's a true crime case, but it, it actually takes place in a very unusual community, right? Yeah, we're going into the Amish community in Ohio. And not just the Amish community, but this is a very conservative element within the Amish community. Yeah, it's called the Schwarzen-Truber Amish community, which is actually a subset of, like you said, the Amish community. And say, if you thought the Amish community was conservative, these guys are way more conservative. And what's really fascinating about this case is that there is a trail of murders and unsolved cases just in this one community. So, John, before we get into the episode, let's talk about the characters in this story. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's really three characters. There's Eli Stutzman, Ida Stutzman, and their son, Danny. And uh, Eli and Ida, they got married in about 1975. And so we're in Ohio in the Amish community. And she, they have a boy together, which is Danny. And Danny was about 10 months old and Ida was pregnant with their second child when this incident in the barn takes place. And the reason why we're talking about this case today is because Ida Stutzman died in a barn fire in 1977. I'm going to read to you a letter that her husband, Eli, wrote about that night. He says, this last July, one night, approximately midnight, my wife woke up and said, there's a fire in the barn. And then she told me that she had been asleep and was woken up by the bursting sounds of some kind from the barn. So, John, here you have Eli writing this letter about his recollection of that night that his wife woke up, that she had been awake and she saw this fire in the barn. I guess what, what I'm confused about is that why did he let her go out to the barn? What happened that night exactly? So, Eli provided many different stories, many different versions as to what happened. But there are many inconsistencies. And one of them was that uh, Ida was found wearing the same clothes she'd worn the day before. And one of the interesting things about that is within the Amish community and within the community that they were in, what she wore was a very intricate and complex outfit with pins and needles and things that you had to hook together. And it takes many minutes to get dressed. And so the idea that someone would wake up in the middle of the night to see a fire and take the time to put on this entire outfit and bonnet calls into question a little bit of common sense there. And so that is certainly a factor. There are many other factors that come into play around the circumstances of this evening. But I think that Eli was constantly trying to damper down any kind of questions or suspicions people might have about him by giving more information he believed about what went on prior to the fire. And today you're actually going to talk with Greg Olson, who has written more than 30 books. His books have topped the charts for the New York Times and Amazon. He's appeared on 2020, Good Morning America, Dateline, as well as featured in the Los Angeles Times and the New York Post. And today we're going to hear about his latest book, The Amish Wife.
The thing that initially pulled me in is this isn't a case where somebody said, hey, go research this this case and write a book about it. I mean, this is something that you have been obsessed, fixated with for decades. And so just talk a little bit about what initially interested you in the Ida Stuntsman death. You're right about that. I mean, it has been kind of an obsession. What brought me back to this was this idea that this woman died. It was just swept under the carpet. It was obvious to me that she had been murdered by her husband and nobody did a darn thing about it. You know, it's, it, it, I, I got to tell you, it's not about me, but in a way it kind of is. It was my one chance to maybe uh, fix something that had been broken. This felt very personal reading the book for you. Well, that's, is that good or bad? Oh, it's good. So I, I liked that uh, you, you put yourself into the story. I want to say one thing about that. It's like, I was raised and learned in journalism school, you know, never to put yourself into anything, you know, this, this bias thing. So uh, all these years, you know, I have done my very best to tell the story objectively, even though I know that what I choose is always a bias too. So the story takes place in Wayne County, Ohio, the biggest population center of Amish people really in our country, more than Pennsylvania even. So there's a lot of Amish people there, a lot of different factions of the Amish or orders of the Amish. And in this particular one, Eli and Ida Stutzman were in the Schwarzentruber clan, which was an order that was the most conservative and they would call it the low Amish. They were, they were the low Amish. They didn't, um, they adhered to every single rule that you could imagine that would be, you know, you know, all of the things like they, of course, rode buggies to get places. They didn't have running water. They didn't, uh, you know, believe in electricity, all those kinds of things that we know about. And their life revolved around the church. So we have Eli and Ida and they're, they're recently married. They've been married about maybe a year and a half. Uh, they have a little baby, um, a boy named Danny. And one afternoon, late in the day, Eli comes home and says that he saw lightning strike the barn. And everybody kind of says, what? You saw lightning strike the barn, Eli? And he goes and makes a big show about what he saw and where it landed. But here's the thing, John. No one could see it. No one could really see what he was talking about. Someone said they saw a little bit of ash or a little bit of blackness, you know, and they poured water on it, but it was really nothing. So it starts with that. That whole day is like a, a, a really a calamity or almost comedic in a way of all the people that come there that day to look at the house and look at the barn, including um, he even has his lawyer come to do the will that night. He even foreshadows that this is God's will that we get this done now. I think Ida loved Eli very much. I think she struggled with a man who wasn't really as close to her and uh, as loving as she wanted her husband to be. I mean, the Amish are normal people. This is what, you know, people don't think that there's some sort of cartoon or cardboard cutout or whatever, but they are just like you and I. They want a good relationship. 
They just have a like a, a biblical framework on how those relationships are supposed to be. So she was supposed to be, you know, subservient to her husband, but that didn't mean she, you know, feared him. She loved him. And Eli, you know, he had other distractions she didn't know about. And they had known each other from a very young age. Yes, from 16. You know, so they're like early 20s now where this is happening. And Eli and Ida, you know, they they dated. He he actually left the Amish and then he came back. And all this whole time she was, you know, waiting for him. She really, really loved this guy. And her family said, oh, no, you know, choose somebody else. You know, he's no good for you. He's got mental problems or he's, you know, not good with the Lord or whatever. So she was really battling a little bit of that from people within her family or her friends, but she wouldn't listen to them. She said, he's, you know, he's the one I love him. When he came back to the Amish and and married her, um, I think she was overjoyed, but I don't think her uh, family and friends were. What does it mean to leave the Amish and how big a deal is that? It's a pretty big deal. I mean, leaving the Amish is saying, you know, I don't want to be a member of this order, this church anymore. You know, we've seen those shows, Breaking Amish and all that kind of thing, where they go out and experience the world. Uh, Room Springer, they call it. But it's really, uh, for Eli, it's a it's an adult decision to be a member of the church. And it's also an adult decision to leave. So, you know, when he was 18, it was time to go. He, he wanted out of there. And, the, you know, that meant he couldn't see his family, although he did. You know, you're not supposed to see anybody. Um, it's, you know, you're under the ban or whatever. They will welcome you back if you repent and go before the church and say, you know, it was a mistake. I want to come back. I will live an Amish life. And, uh, after Eli left, he did come back. And so leaving, it's not just leaving the religion, but it's leaving the culture, the community. It's pretty much leaving everything. It's it's leaving everything that, you know, every connection you have with anybody and anything that is important to you. Yeah. It's leaving that for good. So early on in their marriage, were there any signs of trouble within the couple, uh, anything with uh, ac- actions that Eli was taking, or, or did everything seem normal to those around them? Ida's family was concerned about Eli's absences. He was, he was gone a lot, and they had conversations with Ida about her husband and, and whether or not she felt that he was good to her. And all she would really say was that, I just don't think I can make him love me enough. She would say things like that. But, you know, as far as what Eli was doing, I don't think any of them could have even imagined it. It was not something, you know, they were familiar with or or would ever even have thought about. So we fast forward to the 1977, back to the to the fire, the night of the fire or or the morning of like walk through how people found out about this what was going on earlier in that day the lawyer for the family came and uh, executed a will so that uh, should anything happen to Ida should anything happen to Eli their money or their estate would go to their son Danny um or and a future child when that child was born so that that was in the works that day other people came by you know and had uh, that experience of taking a look at the barn and and where Eli had seen the lightning strike. And probably the most important person there that night was the hired boy. And this was typical of the Amish in that they would bring in somebody to help out 
a farm, especially when there were no farm hands, like a young couple, you know, didn't have any kids and, you know, kids were to work and that's, that's the way it was. So Eli's cousin was there and he was a 12 year old boy also named Eli. Uh, he was there spending the night. He saw some things that we don't really know everything that he saw, but he talks about them a little bit in the story about how he had seen, you know, Eli and Ida uh, having some troubles, but not really knowing what they were. He was the one that climbed up and poured water on where Eli had said the uh, lightning had struck the inside of the barn. So anyway, you know, let's fast forward to that very night. And when we're getting close to around midnight, a fire breaks out in the barn, just like Eli said it might. Okay, this fire breaks out and a neighbor comes running to help. He sees Eli out in the yard. And Eli says, you know, I'm getting this stuff out, uh, these farm implements or whatever. And, you know, was looking around and the man from across the road said, well, you know, where's Ida? And he said, oh, she's over here on the other side of the barn. So they go over there and they find her um, trapped inside the milk house. They break open the milk house door and they find her slumped on the floor and drag her out and lay her next to the barn. She's she's dead. She's gone. And uh, at the in the meantime, while this is all going on, the hired boy is running to get help down the road. And when he comes back, he he tells people later that it was very strange that Eli didn't say anything about Ida being hurt or that what Ida was up to. And of course, uh, he had seen her laying there on the side of the road where they had dragged her. You're talking about when uh, Eli woke up his cousin and told him to go get help, he never mentioned that Ida was hurt or possibly deceased. He never mentioned. In fact, he didn't wake up his cousin. Eli and Ida were out in the out in the field or out in the barn area fighting the fire, supposedly, when the cousin noticed the flames himself. He ran downstairs. He noticed that all the lamps were on, which was very unusual at midnight. Remember, these aren't lights that you can just switch on like we would. You have to light them. You know, it's kerosene. So all these kerosene lights were lit, which was strange to the boy. He ran out there and saw Eli and Eli dismissed him right away and said, you know, you need to get to the neighbors right now and, and call for help. Get the uh, fire department here. So the kid runs down the road, but he sees Ida laying outside the barn and he runs back to Eli and Eli says, oh, yeah, get the rescue squad, too. The thing you mentioned, which I think is arguably the most suspicious or questionable aspect of the entire night, uh, then there are a couple close seconds, was mentioning that the kerosene lights had been lit. Right. Because the story that is is told is that everyone in the house is asleep. And then they awake to a fire and they race outside to put the fire out and to, to address the fire. But when this cousin awakes... He finds the kerosene lights have been lit downstairs, which, like you said, it's not flipping a switch. You have to go and physically light them. So when would somebody have had the time to light those kerosene lights if what happened was a fire started and they both jumped out of bed and ran to the barn? No right. one's going to light them at all. Whether they have time or not, it's ridiculous. The light from the barn fire was bright in that house. So you don't need any light to see it to get dressed. And believe me. You know, getting dressed, you get dressed pretty fast, right? You would think so and get out there. But in this right. particular except, case, I say, except for 
something of the the fact that they are Amish plays into this is that uh, both Eli and Ida were fully dressed at the time that the people came to help. And Eli could simply throw on a pair of pants to get out there. But Ida was dressed in her full like pins and bonnet and everything that they said she had been wearing the day before. The thing about Ida's dress, which I knew about at the time, but I didn't really ever think through the idea of her being fully dressed at night. When I first wrote the book, I kind of knew that, but I sort of believed the coroner and everybody about what they had to say, what, you know, what happened. But she's a Swartz and Trooper Amish, and they don't use any buttons. You know, the men use a hook and an eye for to fasten their clothing, but women use straight pins. You know, and we had an Amish gal stay with us one time, you know, after I wrote the book. And she, you know, her the dress looks like a mess if it's unfolded. This piece goes there, that one goes there, and it's all fasten, fastened with uh, straight pins. There's no way she would have done that. You know, they have night clothing. She could have run probably would have run out there, I believe, in her night clothes, which would be like a like a, a white slip kind of thing or a light blue covering. She is going to go out there. She's not going to be dressed like that. She's not going to have a head covering, for God's sake. She had a head bonnet on. So none of those things, you know, you know none of those things are going to happen in the heat, no pun intended, of a fire. You're going to be hurried as fast as you can to get out there. So you now have two indicators, the kerosene lights being on and the fact that Ida is fully dressed in the clothes she wore that day that seemed to cast doubt on the idea that they had gone to bed and gone to sleep when this fire broke out, that maybe they were still awake, that something else was going on. So this story is quickly unfolding, at least for probably you and I, not necessarily for the authorities at the time. Well, yeah, the authorities at the time did not know of those two things we just mentioned here. They didn't, they could see that she had her clothes on, but they didn't think about or even question whether or not that was something that a woman would do. Um, and they certainly didn't know anything about the lights being on or the, or the lanterns being lit because no one asked the boy. The other thing is that uh, Eli's stories, uh, there's so many, I know you can't talk about all of them, but just talk a little bit about the fact that how Eli's story continued to evolve as he told the story more and more and some of the differences and and that kind of thing. Right. Over time, of course, he would change and embellish the story a bit. He would tell some people, you know, the night that his wife died, you know, it was like uh, a gift from God kind of thing that uh, she had gone home to be with, you know, with Jesus and everything. And this was a good thing. And he had even seen her in a buggy ride one time just shortly before the fire where he felt she looked longingly at the graveyard, like she wanted to be there. There was other kinds of foreshadowing that didn't make sense to people. He said that uh, she had a bad heart and uh, her father thought, you know, I, I don't know a thing about her bad heart. And Eli said, well, I even made little steps to the milk house so that she could get up there um, easier with, a, you know, with her heart condition, things like that. He also told people that n later that night, you know, that she'd gone in to rescue some puppies. Well, they, here's one thing. I don't know that there were any puppies, but I do know the Amish. And I don't think that would have been a priority in that household. I'm sorry. We love our animals. And I know they love and respect what their animals can do for them. But they're not, you know, that's not a pet. You're not, uh, you're going to go rescue your, you know, your dachshund or something that you love so much. But you're not going to go in there and risk your life to save some puppies. So that didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense, her story about 
her going in there then to rescue these milk vats, which were metal pails, basically. You know, she's not going to do that. She's visibly pregnant. She's due in a couple of months. She's not going to be in there wrestling with heavy equipment and yanking it out to save it. None of that stuff, you know, the puppies or the milk vats, none of that would have made her go out into into that area where she would later die. And I think in another iteration of Eli's story, he had said she had gone to save kittens, which uh, is not something you would confuse if it were puppies or kittens. That's not that just sounds like, you know, somebody that's making up something that sounds compelling, not you don't confuse those two. That's right. I mean, there were all sorts of other stories. He, you know, later in life, he would tell people that she died in a car wreck, you know, that his wife had had an illness or something and succumbed. I mean, there were lots of different ways. And this is what a liar does. They don't keep track of their own stories, no matter, you know, but they don't know that people are going to connect those dots. And I think Eli, considering that he was Amish and considering that he was a gay Amish man, which we haven't mentioned, I think he probably felt secure that none of these factions are ever going to talk to each other. So I can say whatever I want. So let's talk about the investigation. I guess it was determined to be an accident. I don't know. They are, you know, combined with natural causes because they did talk about her, I guess, her heart as well. But yeah, talk about the investigation. So we got police on the scene. You think clearly they're going to be skeptical. You and I are picking up on this stuff. They should have as well. But how did this investigation unfold with the coroner, the police, arson, all of that? What investigators, what, what went on? Nothing. Nothing went on in terms of an investigation. That's the crazy part of it. In fact, uh, Sheriff Jim Frost, who was the Wayne County Sheriff at the time, you know, he was there on the scene. And when his chief detective investigator, um, Jim Gosser, came to the scene, he dismissed him and said, nothing to see here. This is just an accident. Go on home. There's nothing to investigate. So right at that moment, at that time, it was over. You know, they accepted Eli's story or appeared to accept it, that she had a bad heart. She succumbed during the trauma of the evening uh, of the blaze and all of that. And it was an accident. That's it. Was that just a cultural thing that he spoke, they believed him, they should accept what he said, or or is there more to it that they failed to investigate at all? Yeah, well, here's the thing. There is a cultural thing at play here a little bit, and on both sides, really. I mean, the Amish do want to handle things on their own. There's no doubt about that. They prefer to deal with their people who misbehave or even are criminals within their own ranks. They They prefer that. They feel like that's a better way to deal with such a problem. And the, the cops there, they're pretty much, you know, they leave the Amish alone to let them do that. Although if it's a big crime, of course, they will, you know, intervene and arrest them. And they have arrested many Amish people over the years. So but there is that a little bit of that at play. That's what made it easy for people to say, oh, it was an accident because, oh, well, she's Amish and um, out of respect for the Amish, uh, we're just going to do this quietly and, and uh, you know, and, and and not do any work on it. That could be seen as something that uh, that was a real pathway to getting it done. But someone who has spent decades and decades uh, thinking about this case like yourself, uh, you weren't about to, to just uh, accept that. And so through your digging and interviews, uh, you uncovered some connections or relationships uh, between Eli and those who should have been investigating and and talk about a little bit about what you uncovered. Yeah, you know, that's the main thing. That's why this is such 
a dirty case. And that is like 18 months, a couple of years before Eli was involved in a, believe it or not, an undercover sting operation for the Wayne County Sheriff. I mean, does that sound like, you know, Amish undercover? <laughs> it sounds, it sounds ridiculous, right? But this is before he married Ida, before he came back to the church, he was uh, induced somehow to buy marijuana from somebody, which he, you know, he did. And then he reported, you know, who he bought it from at, at the bidding of the sheriff. And then things kind of got out of hand. They got, I don't know exactly what the prompt was, but somehow Eli became very afraid or acted like he was afraid and ended up, uh, you know, writing notes and saying, you know, they're coming after me. You better watch out, that kind of thing. He even faked a stabbing. He said he was jumped in the barn and he there was blood everywhere and he was a, a victim of this retribution for, for going against these drug dealers. That was the whole thing. But the cops, and that would be Wayne County Sheriff Jim Frost, found out that it was all a lie, that everything he had said and done, the lies he told, the, the letters he typed was on a typewriter that he had in the house where he was staying, that uh, the blood had been caused by cuts that he'd made to himself and sprayed it around, you know, the barn to make it look like something, put blood on some rocks. Um, he almost actually almost died. So there, that went on. At the, you know, the historian lingered for a few days before they finally announced in the paper that it had been, you know, a sham and that it hadn't really happened. And to me, Eli had done this kind of thing before, faked other things to get attention or to get out of something. He had done that earlier in his life when he was about 17. So he'd done it before. To me, this is the key. This is the whole key to this, this sordid mess of a story that would lead to the death of other people too, right? Because Eli killed other people. Go a little deeper into Eli's relationship with law enforcement, uh, personal relationship yeah. as well. Well, yeah. I mean, Eli's best friend. Jim Taylor was a sheriff's deputy. He was a, a gay man. James Frost was gay. Another deputy that lived there. Two others that were on the department were gay. There were a lot of gay, you know, deputies at that time. Mostly, I would say, recruited by Jim Frost, who was a, a charismatic, smart, kind of the epitome of what a small town sheriff should be, except for that one thing that really troubled him which was the secret he had to keep about his sexuality that weighed on him. And that would be his undoing later in life. But he was smart and talented and all, all those things. There's no way he would have looked the other way on what Eli did that night on the fire with Ida, knowing what he knew. And there was a relationship there. Were they lovers? Probably. But I don't know that because they're both dead. Right. And so Eli and many of these sheriff, sheriff's deputies seem to uh, have relationships that we, we can't prove exactly what went on, but there certainly was a closeness there that was secretive, that uh, no one could, could talk about those things. So it had to be kept under wraps. And then Lee, Eli finds himself in this situation with his wife dead and the sheriff's looking at this and the sheriff deputies knowing that Eli knows their secret. That's right. Uh, and so that's a big driver behind why uh, the investigation never went anywhere. I believe that's true. Eli knew that he had something over Sheriff Frost, whatever it was. 
it was it this was it sex or was it the fact that that deal at the barn where he stabbed himself was you know a setup of some kind you know there was something there that we will never know exactly what it was but i know that there was a relationship a deep relationship between those men and that night at the fire Jim Frost had the opportunity to call it out for what it was, because later he would tell people he suspected it, but he never did anything about it. I was going to say, what about the county coroner? Where, how did he or she play into this? The coroner, J.T. Questell, he was like uh, a father figure to Jim Frost. There's no doubt about that. Everybody talks about that. They were very, very close. And I think that their connection there was also the undoing of that case. I mean, that case, I if you look at the records and later I would see the autopsy reports and I know they were partially obliterated. And I know it was because Jim Frost had undue influence over Dr. Questell. Seemed like the uh, coroner did not have much objectivity in this case. Hey, well, the, <laughs> yeah, that's one way of putting it. I mean, the coroner, I think there's, yeah, I mean, the coroner didn't have any objectivity. I don't know, because I think I saw him one time on TV and I interviewed him years ago, 30 years ago. And I do think he was sort of kind of like closed off a little bit. Like I felt that now when I look back at the interview, I think, you know, maybe there was more that I could have gotten if I was harder and tougher on him, because I think there was some guilt there, some some disappointment on his part that this all happened, some blood on his own hands, because if not for him and uh, Sheriff Frost shoving this through, uh, little Danny Stutzman would be alive, and so would Glenn Pritchett, and maybe a couple others. Yeah, because it, had the coroner ruled this a homicide, uh, the sheriff would have had little choice but to do something with it. Um, That's right. Yeah. Eli and Ida had a son, Danny. Talk about what happened to Danny, and then also, if you can, go a little bit into the Glenn Pritchett and how that caught up with Eli. Uh, after Ida's death, a couple of years after Ida's death, Eli started advertising in uh, gay newspapers for a new partner. And he found a man in Colorado. So Eli and Danny moved from, you know, sold the farm and moved to Colorado. He told his family he was going to run a ranch. Um, he didn't tell anybody, you know, that his what his relationship was going to be. And no one knew and probably no one cared or thought too much about it. Danny. Pretty much then for the next few years, Danny shuffled around from state to state with his dad. And on Christmas Eve of 1985, we get a, you know, a man in Chester, Nebraska, goes to get his haircut, sees a flash of blue out on the field and thinks, you know, what is that? He goes up to it. Is it a mannequin? What is it? Well, it turned out it was a little boy dressed in blue pajamas. And no one knew who that kid was or where he came from. He was taken in. It was like Christmas. It was Christmas Eve. It becomes kind of magical and sad and mystical and all those kinds of things. They call him Little Boy Blue. And nobody knows where he's from, who he belonged to, how he died. None of that. It's a big mystery. A couple of years after that, Reader's Digest does an article about it. And the Amish recognize the description of the boy as one that's been missing for some time. And it's Little Danny Stutzman. It is Eli and Ida's boy. Eli never reported him missing or uh, and for at least a while I pretended as if he Danny was still with him, even though he was already deceased. Yeah, for about 18 months, even longer than that. 
He would even uh, put somebody on the phone pretending to be Danny, or he would fake letters and send them to the family. Um, I've seen these letters that uh, said, oh, I'm my dad and I are you know down in Texas now and blah, 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 that kind of a thing. So Eli, just as he did, you know, with Ida, as he did, you know, with other lies that he had told, big, big lies in his life, you know, he fabricated and, and a story and tried to make tangible proof of things that weren't real. And Eli was only charged with like abandoning a corpse or something with her, with his son's death, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Fail, failure to report a death and abandoning a human body. It was an 18 month charge. But in the meantime, when they arrest him, it turns out that Texas wants Eli too for the murder of Glenn Pritchett, which was Eli's roommate down there. So he does, you know, Eli does his 18 months in Nebraska. And then ends up uh, on trial in Texas for the murder of Glenn Pritchett, which they do prove. Um, and it's the same thing. Eli says, you know, he talked to Glenn on the phone, you know, after this was after Glenn was dead, gotten messages. He was sure everything was fine. He's done the same song and dance that he always used because he was a very good and frequent liar. He ultimately that caught up with him. And so he yeah. was convicted of homicide with uh, right. Glenn, Glenn Pritchard. Right. And so talk about what ultimately happened to Eli. Well, Eli, you know, went to prison. He got a 40 year sentence. He was out in 11, I believe. And it turns out that in 2004, he committed suicide in Texas. And that's when, uh, of course, a whole can of worms opened. But the people who knew him down there, they did not know uh, about his wife or his child because he had lied about them, too. What was the hardest part about writing this book for you? Hmm. Having enough time, even though you had 30 years to think about it, you know, I, it was going to be a short. And my publisher said, you know, we needed them in September or whatever. And I said, I just, you know, I was going to do 10,000 words. And I thought it was great. And then I went and saw Dan Gingrich, Ida's brother, and saw the letters and all that stuff. And I knew that it was way bigger than that, but I still had a freaking deadline. So, so I mean, I'm writing it practically in real time as I'm going out to Ohio. I went out four times. I'm writing it in real time. I'm letting my editor know. And, you know, even at the very end, I'm begging them to put that last part in because I felt like that was key. And maybe part of this whole thing is maybe there's going to be someone else that will come forward. They'll read my book and they're going to say, you know what? There's another piece you don't have. And and that's what I'm really hoping for. I mean, the hardest part of writing the book was not being able to say everything I wanted to say in, in the time allotted. And the hardest part now is going to be, you know, I got my fingers crossed that someone else will come forward because I think she deserves it. I think all of his victims deserve it. Have you let go of this case or are you going to continue to investigate this case? Because even though you've been working on this for uh, 40 some years, I think, or close to it, that I, I still feel like there's a part of you that is still hooked to it. So what are your thoughts going forward on this case as far as your involvement? All I want is for somebody at the county level to say this was a suspicious death. It wasn't an accident and it wasn't uh, natural causes. There's never going to be a trial. There's no way to get justice other than the county saying, you know what, we effed up. So, John, that that was a fascinating episode. There were some twists and turns there that I didn't see coming. 
first let's talk about his son Danny because the cause of death still remain undetermined. Eli wasn't charged for his death. He merely served a short sentence in prison for failing to report his son's death and abandoning a human body. Then there are these two other murders in Colorado that are connected to Eli, both in time and place, but Eli has never been formally charged with those murders. The only real crime that Eli Stutzman has been convicted of is murdering his Texas roommate, Glenn Pritchett. And after serving his time, Eli Stutzman eventually took his life. So that's the case of the Amish wife. Uh, John, that, that was a great, and I'm sure you and Greg Olson only scratched the surface on this case, right? Yeah. I mean, he spent a good chunk of his life digging into this case and obsessing over this case. And so it's just, there's so many complexities and unsolved crimes that surround Eli Stutzman that just keep Greg going back and wanting to find out more. Yeah, I'd, I definitely recommend you guys check out Greg Olson's latest book, The Amish Wife. You could get it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And stay tuned for season five. John and I are we're actively working on it. But in the meantime, you're going to hear a lot more bonus episodes like this. We'll, we'll try to do one at least once a month. Well, thank you. And we'll talk very soon. Creative Babble.